Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Off the Record. I'm your host, Jordan Runtog. Thanks so much for listening. We're taking a brief pause from our story this week. We'll be back with our final chapter on David Bowie next Monday, May 3rd. But today we have something very special in store. A conversation with the mighty Carlos Alomar, a funk guitar icon and one of David's most crucial musical collaborators. They first came together in New York in 1974 when David was producing songs for the British singer Lulu. Carlos was working as a session guitarist at the time and was called in to play on the recording dates. The two got to talking about soul and R&B, which was something that, well, you could say Carlos knew a thing or two about. He cut his teeth as one of the youngest players ever in the Apollo Theater's house band, leading to stints backing James Brown, Chuck Berry, and Wilson Pickett, all while still in his teens. Carlos's influence helped inspire David to take his famous trip to Philadelphia to record the soul-steeped Young Americans record. To get the sound, David tapped Carlos, who in turn assembled a group of players that included his wife, singer Robin Clark, and also his old school friend, Luther Vandross. So began a musical partnership that would last nearly 30 years, and a friendship that would last until David's death. Carlos played on 11 of David's albums, more than any other musician aside from pianist Mike Garson. These include classics like Station to Station, Scary Monsters, and the Berlin Trilogy. He was a member of the so-called Damn Trio, the rhythm section that gave a funk edge to David's electro-experimentations with Brian Eno. Carlos also accompanied David on numerous world tours, often acting as musical director. He even co-wrote Bowie's first number one, Fame, along with David and a guy called John Lennon. His list of non-Bowie accomplishments is formidable. He's played on something like 32 gold or platinum records by the likes of Paul McCartney, Mick Jagger, Carly Simon, Mark Ronson, and Alicia Keys. Though insanely busy, he was gracious enough to take time out of his weekend to speak with me and reflect on his music and memories with David. I hope you enjoy. Well, 
Before we dive into to all your history with, with David and everything, what is your, your Desert Island number one guitar? I got to ask. My Limbic. Yeah. The yeah, Maverick? Maverick. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I only play it with Bowie and I've only used it with Bowie. So it goes from the beginning to the end. So I'll probably just bury it in the same way, untouched by other hands other than for Bowie. Kind of one of my my small tributes to the man, you know. Yeah. Wanted to keep it personal. Do you yeah, you still keep it in a special place in your house and No, it's deep, deep in the in the in the cave here in my place. <laughs> Uh-huh. All insured, and the appreciation is going up and up and up. I'll leave it to my daughter one day. Uh-huh. It's a great little guitar. I use it for songwriting and composition. It just has, because it was made for me, my hand just slips into it. And, uh, you know, you have one of those guitars that you can just twang, you know, around in the house, and it just feels right, and it fits your fingers, and your, everything is right there. And so sometimes you kind of feel like, I feel a little sad today. Let me take out my old Olympic and just hit Maverick a little bit. It's, you know, it's kind of friendly in its home. And I don't have to record with it. I just kind of use it sometimes to inspire. Just for you. Yeah, that's the best. That's best precious. You know, there's certain esoterics. Like for my students, I, I actually ask them to please give their guitar a name. And there's something about when you cherish something that you actually want to, I mean, you 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 have a cat who won't give you the time of day, but you will give it a name. And, uh, you know, you cherish that cat, even if he scratches you, he just doesn't give a shit. He doesn't even know your name, but that's just the nature of the animal. I think that once my students start giving their instruments names, then they go to them a little bit more. That's a and connection. that's an esoteric. So... Tell me, how did this journey start for you? How did the son of a Pentecostal minister wind up playing with with Chuck Berry and James Brown and Wilson Pickett, not to mention David? Well, after all these years, you have to kind of turn it around and kind of critical think and say, what was it like for them working with me? So then I have to kind of look back and say, well, look, I kind of started this this guitar thing because I only knew a few chords. And so... I started developing this way of playing that allowed me to play chords, but Jimi Hendrix inspired me by saying, do you know how much damage I could do with one loose finger? (laughs) And and so I realized, although I'm playing a chord, I got a loose finger. So I started like playing rhythm lead. And it got me interested in a lot of different things. Look, my father died when I was 14. So it was a little difficult. And the only thing that I had was the guitar. So I continued playing in church but I wanted to get more chords. And once I got Mel Bay Guitar Dictionary, <laughs> that was it. And then my music started getting a little bit funky. And I used to get put in discipline where the ladies would say, hey, that's not Christian music. You know, that doesn't sound like... And I'm like, uh, it sounds good to me. <laughs> and so I started getting that kind of religious thing about, are you playing like God's chords? Are you playing somebody else's? And that totally just said, you know what? I'm in it for the music. Hell with all of this. <laughs> and from then on, my father gave me his blessing to let music be, you know, what I follow. And so you can understand what it's like to have a kid that has an instrument and he gets his instrument and he starts playing for the love of it. And they notice him and he's really dedicated. So I went down to the Apollo Theater when it was my father died. And that's when I got, I joined this troupe of, uh, you know, singers that were being, 
trained in the basement of the Apollo Theater by the Apollo management. Little did I know that it was the beginning of my training and I was encouraged by all the people that came to the Apollo. So I kept playing my guitar and I got in. And then the the, the guy that was the, the band leader, he heard me. He's like, hey, you're pretty good. And then he said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm playing for the amateur hour. Come on, I'll have you playing. I'm like, I was 17 and they used to hide me in the basement because I didn't have a, I didn't have a union car. <laughs> and, uh, and through that, I was able to kind of rise up. And then I played in the house band. And then, you know, people would come to play Esther Phillips and all the, the, the grace of the Apollo Theater. And who's playing in the background? Carlos, you know. And, uh, you know, we recently did a, a, a documentary called By Whatever Means Necessary for the Epics Channel. And it kind of highlights that Robin and I as young kids you know, at the Apollo in the 60s. And basically, I, I started getting calls. You know, hey, this kid is really good. And I started playing after hour joints with the with the same guy, George Stubbs, that was the band leader for the, little, for the band that we had down there. And uh, once I started playing, my name just started going around. Yeah, I started getting some gigs in studios and jingle houses. And next thing I knew, I was with the band called The Main Ingredient. Everybody Plays the Fool is the hit song we had in 1970, about 1970, 71, around there. And I went on on the road with them. And we got all those kind of like those soul reviews you hear about. You remember those, like the main ingredient, the OJs, the Spinners, the Detroit Emeralds, like all of the bands. You know, all the bands used to work. So, you know, I started playing around there. And I got, again, my name got thrown around a lot. Somebody calls me up, hey, uh, Chuck Berry needs a guitar player. You know, he's playing at, uh, uh, what was it, Rye Playland in, in, in up New York. Can you make it? Sure. Get there with him. Can you, you know, he tells us, when I, when I swing my guitar sideways, you stop. When I swing my guitar up and down, you start. Okay, here we go, boys. And I'm like, are we going to rehearse? And he turns around and he says, you don't rehearse rock and roll, son. <laughs> That's a lesson right stage, there. And, you know, I fashion my guitar style. If you notice, you know, when I want my band to stop, I'll take that headstock and just up and down, boom, stop. And when I want them to do a cut, I'll go sideways. So a lot of the conducting that I do is based on getting hit with that true, unadulterated fact given to you by Chuck Berry. You don't rehearse rock and roll, son. (laughs) You know, if you stop and you go, that's it. And uh, and that's it. My name got passed around. One day, I got a phone call from RCA that they needed a guitar player for this tracks uh, from this girl named Lulu that they were doing. And, and I knew who Lulu was because I saw to show with love uh, with Sydney Portier. And I was like, wow, she's really a, a really good blue-eyed soul singer. I'd love to work with her. But come to find out, it wasn't her at all. It was the rhythm tracks for the session. And that was me and the producer, David Bowie. So as you can see, meeting these people to me has just been like somebody calls. I don't know anybody's telephone number. <laughs> you know, somebody calls me up. They somehow get my number. Hey, are you free for it? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, okay. Who is that? Oh, I don't know. Some person you know, for the Bee Gees, some group. I don't know. Who's that? Carly Simon. I don't know. Peter, Paul, and Mary. I, you know. and, and so you get phone calls and you always say yes. And that's how you become Carly Solomon. <laughs> <laughs> it's all it's all a continuum well I, I've been blessed and so what do I know I'm blessed with an incredible amount of talent I should add 
well, that that's a given as it's, if I look at it as a God-given talent, then I don't recognize it as being anything other than what I do. And the fact that it joins so well with what other people need, oh my God, if I could get that all my life. Oh, wait a minute. I do get that all my life. <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah. Just I mean, being open to is, it. Yeah, there is a certain amount of graciousness that you have to have in looking at everything that really is good for you. I mean, obviously, put a few bad things in there, and my speech and my content would probably be horrible and worse. But I don't really look at that. I kind of just look at, wow, that was cool. And so that registers on the good part. And that's the way I look at life, just the good part. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. When uh, when David first walked in and you first met him, what were your first first impressions of him? Were you aware of his music at all? Nah, I think I'd seen something maybe that, like one of those Wolfman, uh, was it Wolfman Jack? Wolfman Jack, the, yeah, yeah, one of those midnight specials where you saw him in that Ziggy. I think that that was about the first uh, recollection of anything from Bowie, but it was nothing. I mean, I was doing James Brown and the main ingredient and the chilling circuits. Well, you know, I saw it, but I guess it didn't register. I mean, did it register with anybody? No. <laughs> he was just this guy from London who dressed up in funny clothes. <laughs> what was your... And what's, the, and what's the spider from Mars? Any? 
<laughs> what was your, your initial point of, of musical connection between the two of you? When did you actually really meet on like a spiritual level? Oh, well, you know, he asked me to work with him after we did those tracks. And I was already working with the main ingredients. So, I mean, he, he wasn't paying any money. He was, he was poor then. And uh, I kept working with the main ingredient. And, uh, but we hung out and I said, listen, why don't you come to Harlem? Oh, man. Listen, he did an interview once where he said something like, uh, you know, I really like soul music. I, I met this black guy named Carlos, just Carlos. You know, he's really funky and he, you know, and I want that kind of music, you know. And this is David Bowie when we had first, first, first met. Um, so we kind of hung out. We took him to the Apollo Theater. He met Richard Pryor, <laughs> who cursed him out and told him to get the fuck out of his room. <laughs> Which David was really happy about being kicked out by Richard Pryor. Um, and then we just hung out. And then he asked me to do Diamond Dogs. Couldn't do that. But we still hung out. You know, then he came back and he was doing the Tower Theater and all that stuff. And at that point, I was really like, yeah, this is a nice guy. I really want to work with him. So you know what? He went to Philadelphia. He was going to get the sound of Philadelphia to work with him, and they turned him down. And that's when he said, man, I don't know what to do. They, they turned me down, and I don't have a band. And I was like, dude, I, I got a band. That's all I do all day long, man. And that's what I was able to bring in Amir Kassan and uh, Luther Vandross, my wife Robin, uh, Diane Sumler, uh, Anthony Hinton, um, later on, uh, Amir Kassan and uh, Dennis Davis. So, you know, I kind of brought in my whole R&B trip, and that's when the magic started happening. Instead of taking months, as the spiders from Mars might do, when, you know, they bring their families, they, they have a budget from the record company, they're working their stuff out. Nah, we were seasoned musicians. We kicked out the first, I mean, we must have done that album in two weeks. David had to struggle to have some kind of inspiration and a song, two songs a day, boom, boom, boom. So David was scuffling to just like write those words. Any thought that he had, you know, hold it, hold it. I want to put these thoughts down. And everybody would take a nap, a cat nap for like four hours. What time is it? Two o'clock in the morning. He's ready for you to do something. Oh, hold on a minute. Let me splash some <laughs> water on my face. And in doing it at that breakneck speed, Young Americans was achieved. And then a little later, with a little studio magic, uh, the two songs and the sessions out of uh, Electric Lady came about. And so that was the basic premise of the Young Americans. Was there ever a sense of, with you or everyone you were working with, with, with Luther and Robin, was there ever a sense of skepticism for David? Like, hey, I've, I've worked with James Brown. I've worked with Chuck Berry. Who's this guy from England who can just thinks he can come here and, and pull off doing, you know, the, the soul record? Was there ever a sense of, of kind of like, I don't know if skepticism is the right word, but, but kind of wondering if, if, if he could pull the sound off? Um, regrettably, that would take a certain amount of ego which you can't really have mm. when you're doing this kind of business. If you're a lead singer, I can understand a competitive nature granting you that. But when you're background singers and support crews and rhythm sections, man, you go in there, and if it takes me to give you 15 different versions of what you said you wanted, 
I'll keep switching until we achieve something that neither of us alone could ever have achieved. When the rhythm section goes into work, you're one harmonious unit. Mm. And you have to act accordingly. The first thing you have to do is self must be gotten out of the picture and you have to open up your ears. And then when you hear yourself inside the music, then play your instrument. Did David know what he wanted to hear or did he kind of pick and choose? Did you play, okay, I'm going to try it like this. Okay, no, that's not it. I'm going to try it a little differently. I'm going to try this riff. I'm going to try it with this syncopated rhythm. And then he would go, oh, that's it, that's it. Or did he kind of, did did he have a general idea? There's a lot of different methodologies that are used depending on what confidence you have and what you've built. In the beginning, there was just young Americans. So here's a little groove. Can you do anything with that? Boom, done, next. Give me, you know that little groovy thing? Give me that, call, like a Chinese menu, one from column A, two from column B. <laughs> and you put them together, and then he has to write. So, look, right now you have these kids that have these drum machines, and they have all these loops and all these grooves. If you had three or four grooves and you put them together, there's your song. Right. But you huh? didn't have that in 1974. What you did have is a rhythm section that is primed to be able to lock in a groove and leave holes. You see, unlike a band, we're session musicians. We know how to leave a hole for the next part. Other people, they just grab whatever they, every lick they ever played, they're going to play it in every song they ever play. <laughs> Everything they've ever played, they, 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 they put all their crap that they play on your song. No, professional musicians listen and they know when they got it. And you know what happens when we nail it? We all bust out laughing. Just expression, spontaneous expression of joy. That's all there is. So as far as did David have this, did David have that, everything is a work in progress the minute you hit the first note. There is no, look, you start something, do you want to tell me what's going to be at the end? Mm. Impossible. You hear this, look, when you were playing it, you played boom, 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 boom. But this bass player you hired plays, are you going to, you just hired Jimi Hendrix to play on your record. You're going to tell him what to play? (laughs) Do you understand now? Yeah, yeah. No, you just sit back and let the magic happen. David was smart enough to just shut the hell up and let that magic happen right in front. And then... Get your ass moving and get some lyrics that mean something. And you got to catch up because all the keys are higher than you expected. Oh, wow. Now you, you have to reach for everything. You got you to gotta dig deep because nothing is comfortable. Listen to the range of young Americans and you'll never hear any album that he shows that depth and that height of, of range. Wow. I mean, yeah, just thinking about it now, I mean, even a song like, you know, Right or something, too. I mean, you, you can hear it comes through, too. I mean, that he's pushing it. Somebody, just... up, somebody up there likes me? Yeah. You listen to that song and, and you stop from the bottom note and you go to the bottom one. He goes, he has got Anthony Newley to Eddie Kendricks up there in the heights. Oh, yeah. So, anyway, so much for young Americans and how. 
uh, how people, how do I get to be with those people? <laughs> you mentioned the uh, the electric lady sessions. I am I correct in saying that the the first song that that you ever credited for on on record is also a, a co-write with not only David Bowie but John Lennon? Uh, yeah. But uh, no, let's put it the first commercial hit, eh? Because I did write some other songs with other people that didn't do anything. Unless you give credit where credit is due. But it's the first commercial hit. And for a young kid, you know, I think maybe 21 or something, 22. That was amazing. And look, let's understand there, there are some inherent problems with being a Puerto Rican guy with an afro. (laughs) And that is, the minute I started hearing all the press, I kept hearing uh, fame written by John Lennon and David Bowie. Fame written Mm. by John Lennon and David Bowie. And you can understand how that feels until finally, you know, who came up and stepped up to the plate? David. No, no, no. Carlos came up with that riff and Carlos was responsible for that. No, no, we just did this. No, no, Carlos did all of that. No, no, no. And so that was, as always, he's always been a champion for righteousness. And so to that end, he he stepped up to the plate and made that correction. But it wasn't like it wasn't, you know, yes, it was a wonderful thing to have that honor. But then again, to feel that immediate, <laughs> immediate uh, a kickback is just like, hello, hello, I'm here, I can hear you, hello. Oh, that, that had to have been rough. Not for a minute, and then I started getting checks every day. <laughs> shit. Fair, fair. That's true. I mean, what was John like? Well, I mean, just being in a studio with him, I can't even imagine. What was it like being being around him, watching him work? You know, you don't get very much recollections from they. Celebrities have a tendency to a kind of uh, uh, what is it called? Uh, self. They kind of eliminate their faces. <laughs> they John comes in as a very gregarious, funny guy who has no problem making jokes and being funny in order to alleviate his own super presence in the room. And so his congeniality kind of makes it hard for you to get anything really out of him because it's just, hey, guy, how you doing? All right. Hey, buddy. Wow, wow, great, great, you know. Uh, there's nothing to grab onto other than the fact that, oh my God, he's a celebrity. But what is he supposed to do? Like walk in like he has a cloak on or something? (laughs) And so we're working. And so he's like, hey, John, how you doing? Hi, I'm Carlos. Cool. That's the way we are in the studio. Dude, I know what you did, but I hear you play guitar. Let's play some guitar. You know, so he'd step in there. He plays a little something, something on it. You know, it's all right, but we can only use the beginning. And even the beginning is is inverted, so it comes in backwards. So when you hear Finn, you hear this suction kind of piano. That's that's it. It's a guitar turned backwards. After that, there's very little that you hear of it. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, but then you do hear every once in a while when he was in the studio, he would put his chin down on his guitar. And as he breathed out... (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> there it is. And so uh, uh, David was like, do you hear fame in there? And I'm like, dude, what? I, I, I don't know what you've been smoking. I hear whatever you say. <laughs> and uh, 
you know, I think that that's the way that reference was made to fame and John and all that. But again, you know, the, this is the folklore that's created uh, by David, which I, I totally love. I can certainly back up most of that. Um, but whether it inspired the name or whether that was his participation that gave it his credit, these are all things that we do. Remember, David was very anxious to meet and work with uh, a John. So having his name associated with John was the initial intent. And to that end, by whatever means necessary, truly. It must have been special just hearing it back all complete for the first time, just all you all it together was for on the, It was for them. <laughs> it was for them. Me, I was just playing <laughs> funk like I always do. They heard it and they were like, oh my God, I can't believe you turned that into that. I'm like, uh, yeah, that's what I do. That's what dude. I do. <laughs> yeah. And they was like, let me put that with this funk guitar. It's done. And I was like, cool. How did you notice his method of, of songwriting change from, from Young Americans to, to something like Station to Station or especially Low? Because it sounded like he went from coming in with relatively full, complete songs to more sort of building it up in the studio. Well, it appears that way. But if you go song by song, if you look at Station to Station, Station to Station is three categories. It's still Young Americans. I mean, wild is the wind and word on a wing. I mean, are those about as soulful as you can get, aren't mm, they? Yeah. They really are an extension of young Americans. And then when you want to go pop, Golden Years and TVC 15, I mean, what is that? <laughs> it's just like, you know, Golden Years was like, uh, he, he wanted to, you know, this song called uh, On Broadway. You know, an old doo-wop song. Drifters, yeah. Well, that was later on, but it was an old doo-wop song first. But it had the same chord changes. Let me hear you say love. It's the same as they say the neon lights are right around the same chord changes. So we changed it up a little bit. But again, the reference is made only to indicate that was really part of Young Americans. And then to have uh, those two pop songs in there, you know, they were all right. But they certainly didn't mark a new direction. But now you look at Stay. Well, Stay is John, I'm only dancing. Mm, that you, can't, you can't really hear it because you don't hear it back to back. But if you sing John, I'm only dancing to Stay, they're the same song. Even the music is the same progressions. People just don't realize. He said, look, hey, Carlos, that was a great song. Can you do a new arrangement on that song for me? Oh, yeah, sure, David. So I do a new arrangement on a song. He goes and changes the lyrics. <laughs> whole new he's, song. Got, he's got his whole new song. I mean, these are techniques, if you're asking about techniques that people are not aware of. Um, and then you have the big one, Station to Station. Well, Station to Station, we, I just found out that in disco music, they'll pay you extra money if your song is longer than three minutes and... Like, I think that single was like three minutes and 20 seconds. Like if you go three minutes and 40 seconds or four minutes and 20 seconds, you get paid double. <laughs> and so when we found that out, they was like, really? I said, yeah. So the introduction, I said, let me make an introduction for you. The introduction to stay, uh, to stay from the station, that must be like four minutes long. <laughs> Boom. More money, more money, more money. <laughs> which is kind of cool if you think about it. That's why on that album, I think, what do you get, like six songs or seven songs? Because they're all like ridiculously long. 
Can you tell me how the the, the, the damn trio came together? Well, damn trio started after after Young Americans. I started doing uh, Broadway, and I was on the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and so. By doing the Rocky Horror Picture Show, I was already into rock and roll before David asked me to do Station to Station. So, so when we got together, I had already had Dennis Davis um, uh, because we had worked together on some of the stuff in um, Electric Lady. And so Dennis was working with this other cat, George Murray, and so we were anxious to work together. So when we had a chance, then, uh, George Murray was brought in to replace Amir Kassan another friend of mine. And so, man, when we got together, it was like George Murray was like the lead guitar player, but he played bass. You know what I mean? So he, instead of holding down the bottom by playing one note, he would walk with the bass like a like a guitar player playing riffs. And so that kind of opened this thing up to have this very mechanical lockdown groove that was still funky but created all this movement. Well, David was elated because in essence, he wanted to replicate the electronic essence of craft of work and have that mechanical thing, but he wanted it done by a funk rhythm section. So here is the, the anomaly that no one even looks at. Here is a Super, super white Brit with orange hair being backed by all black rhythm sections for all these years. Don't you find it amazing that they're still talking about the spiders from Mars? And yet, they never talk about the damn Chia, who was responsible for so many amazing transformations from station to station to low, scary monsters, all that amazing stuff was driven by the Jandam Trio. And so, you know, during that time, David had all these other bands, you know, the Tin Machines. And to us, it was just that other type of either rock, industrial rock, or just noise rock. And so the Damn Trio had a totally different brand for David. So whenever David left the Damn Trio, that's when he went back to being the other David that wasn't the funky, soulful David. So that is the legacy of, of the damn trio. The, the, the trio that backed David through all of those periods, mind you, all the time, the credit was actually being given to the, you know, to the Brian Enos and to the Robert Fripps and to the Adrian Blues and to the all the other people that would come as uh, invited soloists and all that stuff. But as a rhythm section, the people that locked down David Bowie during all those years was Dennis Davis, Carlos Alomar, and George Murray, the damn trio. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. 
This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. And you think of... of the work that you did, you mentioned low a moment ago. I mean, just the, the sound on that is so unique, so groundbreaking. What what were those sessions like for you? Was that were they relatively similar to, to Station to Station and, and what the work you done with them prior, or was it completely different? Well, let's understand that it's, it, the interview is about my perspective. So let's understand what was going on during these periods. Remember when I told you before I even did Station to Station, I was already doing rock and roll on Broadway with Tim Curry and Meatloaf and everything, doing the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It just so happens that when David is asking me to go on tour for Station to Station and create all this stuff, I wanted to bring studio-quality equipment onto the road. I don't want to use floor pedals. I don't want to use stomp boxes. And so I devised a totally stereo system that used rack-mounted units from the studio. And I brought those rack-mounted 19-inch units to touring with David Bowie. Now, mind you, this is all during the time of Frank Zappa and Jerry Garcia and all these American monsters doing the same thing. But the one that was doing it first was me. And while I was doing that, when the 80s first came up, I started working with the synthesizer guitars, you know, before they started coming out with the mold guitar and all those other things. So me, Andy Summers, a few other people were working in those areas. So this technological thing that happened wasn't foreign to me. Look, even when I met Bowie, 
in the 70s when he first met me, I already showed him that I could play all of Jimi Hendrix Are You Experienced? <laughs> I heard Jimi Hendrix and went crazy. I immediately learned all the parts. When I met David Bowie, not only did he know I could play with James Brown, all that stuff, but when he heard me playing Jimi Hendrix, he was like, holy shit, <laughs> who are you, dude? And so the electronic thing for me was a major explosion. When the Macintosh Plus came out, I took it on the road and created a guitar synthesizer album with a Mac Plus when it first Whoa. came out. So this issue of technology, I was always into it, man, always. The same way that they talked to, to uh, Tony Visconti about bringing pedals and doing that, I was doing exactly the same thing, you know, stringing three and four amplifiers all in a row, each with a different effect, and then putting a microphone in the middle and seeing what it sounds like. I mean, we had time to do all kinds of experiments like that, Visconti and I and even Eno. So going into the studio to do low was just another way for us to finally let ourselves just fly. But it was a little different than everything else because of the methodologies that Brian Eno brought, brought with him. How was it working with him? Was it uh, was it a challenge? I know in, in some interviews you've given, you said that yes. it was like working with a professor. Yes, it was a challenge because the challenge is what you want. You don't want a problem. So it, it, may, it taxes you to use everything you have to try to get out of that situation. For instance, we know that we have certain methodologies, let's call them again, like this. Hey, I like the verse and the chorus. When's the chorus going to happen? Is there a bridge in this song? Hey, where's the introduction? How? You never ask, how long is a classical song? <laughs> That's true. You don't wait for a chorus to repeat itself in a classical song, do you? So you see, you're already stepping into an arena where you're thinking a verse, a chorus. Hey, a bridge would be nice here. Hey, you should go to the fort just like all the blues songs go. These things are inherently found in your brain when you walk into a session. What happens if it's a classical section? What use is my rock and roll nonsense going to do me there? Or a flamenco, oh my God, let's say it's a waltz. I am so screwed. <laughs> so here Brian, you know, lays out all these things that are more linear. They go on for a while. In fact, they go on for a while so much that you can't actually hear a beat. Oh, wait a minute. Just like classical music, there is no tempo. And so all you hear is one, two, three, four. This constant person calling numbers. And you know, Brian says, hey, Carlos, when you get to 57, can you play a little something for me until you get to like 75? And you're going, what? Because all he let you hear was like two instruments, just enough so you can get some kind of key. You're not even hearing all 42 tracks of whatever the hell he has hidden from you. So you play along with it and you try to do as best you can. You know why? You're pretty satisfied with it. Until he presses that button, then all the other tracks come in. You go, holy shit, wait a What the hell is that? Wow, that is so cool. And so limiting what you hear so that you can get the maximum out of somebody is a different methodology than letting them hear everything and then letting them just shit all over everything that you just put down. <laughs> you know, mess up all your holes. There's everything they ever practice. Just throw it on your, you know. It takes a certain finesse to not get in the way. And the best way of doing it is using methodologies that they're not used to. That's all. Putting things in their mind. How about if he says, listen, listen, Carlos, uh, you know something? I want you to 
you know, sometimes we play some wrong notes. I, I need for you to accent the wrong notes. Accent the wrong notes. <laughs> what the hell? What kind of instructions are those? Uh, first of all, I wasn't playing any wrong notes. Now I got to make some wrong notes. <laughs> <laughs> Can you see how you're messing with somebody's mind before they even touch the instrument? This is the type of logic and reasoning and strategies that you use when you try to use uh, Brian Eno's uh, strategies. And I've grown to get accustomed to them because they allow you to look through things like through a prism. There's no one particular way. All you got to do is move slightly to the left or just slightly askew. And you see through a different prism and everything just changes. So these are kind of chameleon lessons you learn from Bowie. They get traded off. Sometimes you learn the same thing from people like Iggy Pop. You know, you work with him. What's Iggy say? Hey, if I write more than 23 words, it's a horrible song. <laughs> um, he'll say things like, look, if you're going to be wrong, be loud and wrong. I mean, these are fucking great things. They just come veiled in these people. Was there a, a childlike sense to him? Uh, yeah. But there's also an, an adult that'll come chopping down on you if you cross the line. He had those figures around him in, in when he was working, or no, no, no. Your personal space and your personal uh, solitude. Look, when you're at peace with yourself, you find that peace is exactly what you want. Now, what happens if somebody steps into your space and disturbs your peace? Will you allow it, or will you ask them to step out of your space? Hmm. You see, that takes power, but it doesn't mean that you have to brand it as being powerful. You can be kingly by nature, but not by by title or by truth, you know? So he tries to act as royal as he can and try to, but he always maintains, I'm David Bowie, and you see me as David Bowie. Should I digress and turn myself into David Jones, then the mystery of David Bowie is gone. And I don't want you to meet David Jones. That's none of your damn business. Hmm. So you protect it. You protect it with whimsy. You protect it with humor. John Lennon did it artfully by making himself humorous and everybody else at ease. I mean, a lot of people do it a lot of ways until you get to know them. And when you get to know them, then you realize, wow, he's really heavy. <laughs> he don't sound like he's playing around now. <laughs> Ask him the right question. You'll get some seriousness out of him. And look, quite honestly, you know very, very, very well. We could talk about all the whimsy. We could talk about all the, 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 you know, the curiosity and the funniness. But damn it, David Bowie was a serious person who will be taken seriously by all means. And he has no regrets over putting you in your place, whether it has to do with black music, black people, rock and roll, your your genre, your gen, your your gayness, your boldness, your anything. You know, full well he was well voiced and opinionated. So, yin and yang, man, yin and yang. Was there a time that you knew him that he seemed the most at peace? Uh, it's a moving target, man. Everything mm. looks at peace until you find out the shit hit the fan a year later. And then he had a gold record and everything seems at peace again. And then you find out that, come on, there are certain... Look, I know he, I, I was at peace when he got married. I was at peace for him. If that's any way of telling you whether I felt he was at peace, that's the only time I felt that he was at peace that I know I felt that he was at peace. 
when he married Iman, I was just like the weight of the world was off my shoulders. I don't have to protect him from anybody. Hmm. That's a, a, a beautiful feeling for a friend. That must have been just really nice to, to feel that because it seems like peace was something that was, was hard won for him, it seemed like. You have to find the right person. Yeah. It's not an issue of finding somebody. Look, David could drop a dime and marry anybody. It's somebody that will actually want you and you want them and knowing you might not. You, you don't, you know what it feels like? Don't mess it up, man. <laughs> don't mess it up. Don't show too much of the David. Don't close off too much of the David. Don't put that wall down and say, I'm David Bowie. This is another world, man. This is the, the area of love. This stuff that songs are written about. So, yeah, I felt very much at peace when he got married. That's beautiful there. Hey, I meant to say happy uh, happy anniversary to you and Robin, by the way. Ta-da! <laughs> I know, I'm, I missed a few months. I'm sorry, but congratulations. No, we go on. Are you kidding? Every day. we Look, you want to stay married for 50 years, you got to treat that woman right, and that woman better treat you right. And the secret is... Just say yes to everything. Like, don't hold on to anything. And always buy flowers when you screw up. And then give them to her so that she can give them back to you. Flowers work, y'all. I'm telling you, don't be an idiot. And don't bring up sore subjects. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because she will. <laughs> you see, you got to know when to give and when to take. Oh, man. I mean, I, I guess, I mean... I know this is, is probably a question that maybe sounds corny, but I mean, is there, what's the most important thing that you feel you, you learned from your, your time with David? Like, that, how did you grow? Hmm. Well, there's a lot, so it's not easy because growth takes moments and stored memories. So... Climbing up that ladder, it gets hard to find out which rung was the one. I think the consistency of our relationship of mutual dependency and respect, I think, is what takes a, a, a business relationship into a personal relationship, into a friendship. Again, there's a lot of people that say, he's my friend. Hey, hey, I, I met Carlos in 74. I had a drink with him. I've known him for 50 years. He's my <laughs> friend. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't even know my middle name. I've never invited him to, to, to anything. But so you get, I mean, I get callbacks. David wants me to come back for the second album. Oh, wow. I'm thrilled. I never expected it. Hey, close me back for a fourth album. Oh my God, I'm thrilled. I didn't expect it. Never expecting it and always getting it is a wonderful feeling because you never let down. So, never let me down. Hmm. It's a perfect song to, to culminate what our relationship was. We never, ever, ever let ourselves down to each other. When my wife got sick and I had to finally say goodbye to David, David said, what are you waiting for? You know, it was like there was no letdown ever about anything. And so that's, uh, that's basically, that song probably says it all, eh? 
just appreciating one another. Yeah, that's it. Marriage is, it comes in many different forms. We had a good marriage. <laughs> and look, we didn't even get set. We didn't even get divorced. We just got separated. <laughs> I'm, a, For example, I'm a creative person who wants to share with people, and I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now to this that, that feel the same way. What do you think David would say to us, people who are, are creative and are you know, searching for their voice and, and are, 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 are working towards that with sharing that? Hmm. Let go be dragged. Hmm. <laughs> I really believe that change is so important that if you know David, then you maybe you know 13 different Davids. If, if you could understand that, then you could understand that we're not meant to stay in one place. We can change. Even when we thought that we were solid in who we were and we were all powerful, you can still change. I mean, he took change to the ultimate you know, form that of somewhat of a phoenix, yeah. <laughs> if you know what I mean. So transformational form, you know, just constantly evolving. What, what can I say? That's the nature of David changes. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand, it's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products, it's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless.